Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move. And here's your need to know. Bubble beware, China warns on global market valuations. Zoom boom, ongoing lockdowns mean continued video calls and strong earnings. And carbon crisis, global emissions rise above pre-pandemic levels. It's Tuesday, let's make a move. Once again to First Move, and we have a jam-packed show for you this Tuesday, filled with positive vaccine news propelling us to that post-pandemic future. Novavax says its vaccine has a 96% efficacy rate against the original COVID strain in late-stage UK trials. Good protection against the UK variant 2. The biotech firm hopes to win emergency use approval in Europe and the United States over the next few months. Its vaccine appears well-suited for use in developing nations as well. Novavax CEO Stanley Erk joins us this hour with a full update. For now, more than 240 million vaccinations have been administered so far around the globe. More than half of Israel's population has had at least one dose. Some 30% of people in the UK have rolled up their sleeves at least once as well. The vaccine broom and softening bond yields helping trigger a global stock market rally on Monday. The S&P 500 actually had its best day since June of last year. And now come the warnings. Data from the World Health Organization shows COVID cases rose for the first time in two months last week. Now is not the time to let up those measures. We also had a blunt warning overnight from China's top banking regulator identifying bubbles in U.S. and EU assets. He said he's, quote, really afraid they will burst someday. He also warned, too, let's be clear about the Chinese property market and the risks surrounding that as well. I think the key here is that we all see the warning signs The problem is that economies today are so intertwined with financial markets that you can't tackle the latter without hurting the former. Let's get to the drivers. Christine Romans joins me now. And Christine, that's what we've been talking about for a while now. Central bankers, I think, recognise the risk. It's tough to address overheating perhaps in financial markets without hurting those that need protection most in underlying economies. And that's key for the United States. It's so true, Julia. And and recent history is a guide to being too concerned about overheating and then not supporting your economy enough and then having a decade of slow recovery from a financial crisis. That's something you don't want to repeat here. But by going gangbusters at at one point nine trillion on the backdrop of trillions already deployed into the economy and a Fed that has had a monetary fire hose on the covid crisis. I mean, do you risk overheating? I mean, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JPMorgan Chase, uh, yesterday in an interview said you do risk 
risk overheating, overdoing it on stimulus. But the bigger risk is COVID, not getting that right, and nuclear war. He threw that one in there. He's just trying to say that, you know, we know that the risk is there of overheating, but there are a lot of other risks, too, and maybe it isn't uh, at the forefront. And in terms of bubbles, I mean, bubbles, bubbles everywhere. I mean, where are they? I mean, are they SPACs? Are they Bitcoin? Are they tech stocks? I mean, maybe, yes, there are always bubbles forming. You never know where they are until they pop. What we know is here right now, immediately, 11 million people who might not be able to pay their mortgages, who are severely behind in paying their their rent or their mortgage bills. We know that there are people who are hungry. We know there are millions of people who need the government to replace their income so they can survive. So that's the reality, what's happening right now. What is the maybe is that overheating concern? Yeah, North Korea clearly on the mind of uh, Jamie Dimon, as well as uh, everything else going on in the world, perhaps. (laughs) Christine, important to point out, the question is, are central bankers forced to react here? Because what we've heard from even the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, she has experience, of course, of, of heading up the Federal Reserve, was that to that exact point, the risks of doing nothing or doing too little here outweigh the risks of doing too much. But even Jamie Dimon was raising the question, perhaps, that this stimulus bill has got things in it that don't need to be there. Yeah, and we've heard this complaint from Republicans and a few moderate Democrats as well. I mean, there are some concerns. There's money for school here, but you don't require the schools to open. They talk about, the Republicans talk about no strings attached uh, money for states. And yet on the front page of the New York Times today, you Uh see this analysis that some states' revenue actually rose. I would say revenue rose because of all of those provisions already in previous COVID relief, like $600 a week extra in unemployment benefits. People spent that money. There were taxes on that money that went to state coffers. So you could argue that it has been the fire hose, the fiscal fire hose that has helped states um, so far and that they might need more help here going forward. Uh, You know, um, the big concern here in my mind has always been undershooting, uh, undershooting like we did last time. And maybe that's because I still have, you know, twitches from the last financial crisis like many of us, uh, many of us do. And there have been these warnings about inflation and overdoing it for years now. And that simply hasn't happened, right? Those inflation fears have been subdued. I do think I do think that the bond market is going to be boss here going out. You're going to see these concerns about overheating. That'll that'll show up in the bond market and that'll be a risk for stocks as we go forward here. But a lot of these growth projections for later this year are five, six, I've even heard 7% growth if you get this 1.9 trillion into the economy. You will have a rip-roaring economy uh, later this year. The the hope is it brings up everybody, right? It just doesn't bring up uh, investors and financial markets and people who already have jobs and wealth. Oh, Christine, very quickly, how many jobs are we down in the U.S. economy? We're down 10 million jobs. We had 18 million people who are getting some sort of benefit. Yep. Just reminding everyone how many people are down. Yeah. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. (laughs) Remote control. Pandemic success story. Zoom says it's here to stay. The video conferencing company is confident it will keep growing beyond the pandemic. It sees revenue rising over 40% this year, even as users return to school and officers. Paula Monica joins us now. Zoom zooming past revenue and profit expectations. People were starting to get a little bit worried, not about what we're seeing currently, perhaps, and what we saw in these fourth quarter earnings, but what happens when life gets back to normal. And Zoom are saying, don't worry, we've got it covered. Yeah, Julia, it looks like Zoom is still expecting very solid growth. Of course, not as strong as it got during the pandemic, as everyone really was working from home and schooling from home and what have you. But 
the outlook is still very solid and I think better than what Wall Street was expecting. And I think what's notable here, Julia, is it's not just that people are going back to work and people are going back to school. You also have a lot of competition. There's Cisco with WebEx. There's mm. Microsoft with Skype and Teams. You have Verizon uh, you know, owning something called BlueJeans now. There's a lot of competition out there. Oh, and Google, by the way, also has Google Meet and Hangouts. So these are all very large Fortune 500 companies that Zoom is going up against. And it has been able to hang in there and uh, beat them at their own game in many respects. I mean, customers with more than 10 employees surged 470 percent to 467,100. These numbers, to your exact point, despite the competition out there, quite phenomenal and clearly beating what analysts were expecting at this stage. But it's not just about those Zoom calls as well. They're trying to expand and diversify what they offer. Talk to me about the Zoom phone cloud based phone platform, because this is another thing that they were talking about on the call. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, one of the areas you're going to see potentially for growth is this cloud-based Zoom phone product, which gives people access to things like voicemail and other kind of old school phone features that we all use in a day-to-day one-on-one conversation. So I think that it's going to be going beyond just having a Zoom chat and having a fun, goofy little background uh, image uh, while you're talking either to your friends or uh, you know co-workers or what have you. I think they realize that Zoom needs to be able to do all the things that companies like Verizon and Comcast and our parent company AT&T offer to businesses and consumers. Paul, very quickly as well, and uh, I agree with all your points, different feel for you in the home office today? Because I believe your children have gone back to school for the first time since November. How are you doing? Yeah, it's uh, it's eerily quiet. So, uh, you know, we'll see if I'm more productive today or if I wind <laughs> up having uh, fewer distractions to keep me focused, if you will, as ironic as that sounds. No, I could well understand it. Yeah, Paula Monica. It's a lot Great easier to, to just kind of put goggles <laughs> on when kids are yelling at each other. <laughs> but that's rare, of course. <laughs> Thank you very much. Paula Monica there. All right, good news for the global recovery. Unfortunately, spells bad news for the environment. Well, 2020 saw the biggest drop in carbon dioxide emissions since World War II. They've now recovered and were higher in December than the year before that, according to the International Energy Agency. John Defterius joins me now. John, who's contributing more in December of last year than, than we were seeing in December of last year? It's incredibly bad news, as great as it is that parts of the world are getting back to life. Uh, yes, it has to be within my space, uh, Julia, the emerging markets uh, led yeah. by China and India. But this is one of those rare cases of course, where you could see climate progress during the lockdown, right? Because the skies are cleaner in the major cities of the world. The planes, trains, automobiles, trucks all, all parked. And that's a result of this uh, extraordinary number. Let's put it up on the screen here. We saw a drop of nearly 6%, 5.9%. You talked about that benchmark to World War II. It was like removing the European Union as an economy out of global growth and emissions for the entire year. That's how big the drop is. The oil demand plummeted by 8.6%. And then that V-shaped recovery you're talking about, we went up 2% in December. It's the beginning of that V-shaped recovery 
uh, by China, which was up 7% in emissions. They had emissions actually going up between April and December. That's when China started to grow again. And India's case, it was in the fourth quarter of uh, 2020. Now, COP26 is a big benchmark for the end of this year in Glasgow, where the U.S., uh, China, India, the European Union, Japan need to set their new targets up to 2050 and the progress they've made so far or the slippage. We've had half the countries hit the targets and the other half have not hit the targets they laid out over the last 10 years. So it is a crucial window with the U.S. involved, by the way, Julia, Joe Biden committing here. We lost four years under Donald Trump. We should uh, see some fairly ambitious targets by the end of this year. Although plenty of companies said, look, irrespective of whether we're in the Paris Accord or not, U.S. companies will continue to try and bring their emissions down and then raise their standards here. It's all going to come down to fossil fuel, oil and gas demand going forward, not just over the next several years, but over the next several decades. John, I know it's Sarah Week where the oil and gas industry big players come together virtually, admittedly. What are they saying not only about the next few years, but about the next several decades? Because this is going to be critical. Well, I'm glad you put it in that context because uh, the CEO so far who have spoken, for example, Baker Hughes and Hess Corporation, would only talk about the next decade, saying that demand will be on the mend. And this is the tricky bit here, Julia. Uh, We had crossed that century mark, 100 million barrels in uh, 2019, and then fell down to 92. It's on the mend, but how much on the mend? Uh, There are some uh, analysis out there that suggests that we could hit peak demand at 100 million barrels or 105 million barrels, right, by 2030. That space in between, between 2030 and the targets for net zero emissions by 2050 is gonna be crucial. Will it be a fade where you go down 20, 30, 40% in terms of uh, oil demand in the future? Maybe even more if you look at the disruption that's underway. Then you have to think of the black rocks of the world, the pension funds, the university funds, not wanting to invest in hydrocarbons right now. That's why you see the IOCs not investing in oil exploration. So the next 10 years, pretty safe bet. Does peak oil demand hit in the early 2030s? And then you see that steep climb down. Uh, Could happen. By the way, last year in the IEA report, they were suggesting that we had renewable energy supplying a fifth of global demand for the first time, 20% and electric vehicles. They went up 40% last year at a low number, just 3 million units. Uh, But global sales and autos dropped 15%. So I would say the energy transition is underway in earnest. Yeah, we just need it to accelerate for the good of the planet. All right, John Devteris, thank you so much for all that information there. Fascinating to watch. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. A court hearing for 47 activists charged under Hong Kong's national security law resumed on Tuesday, but it was adjourned after four of the defendants were hospitalised. It's not clear what their conditions are. Protesters gathered outside the courtroom on Monday to show their support for the detained opposition leaders. Authorities in Nigeria say nearly 300 schoolgirls kidnapped from their boarding school on Friday have been returned safely. An official says all 279 abducted girls have been accounted for and were all in, quote, good condition. The government had denied paying a ransom for their release. Multiple reports say police in Myanmar fired live ammunition today at protesters in the northwestern town of Kalei. They also used water cannon and tear gas to disperse anti-coup demonstrators. One witness told Reuters at least four protesters were injured. 
All right, still to come here on First Move, Novavax's COVID-19 vaccine could be approved in the US by May. We've got the CEO with all the details and Twitter after Trump. The CFO of the social media site on the company's plans to double revenues. That's all next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, from a march forward to a march in place. U.S. futures looking pretty flat after a truly spectacular start to March trading yesterday. Talk about March madness. Tech and small caps were Monday's biggest gainers, rising more than 3% as bond yields eased. The Russell 2000 hitting all-time highs and up more than 15% so far this year, a sign that investors see strong domestic growth ahead. Stronger vaccine rollouts will, of course, help economies recover faster. President Biden expected to announce later today that Merck will partner with competitor Johnson & Johnson to manufacture J&J's single-shot vaccine in what is being called a historic deal. Merck will reportedly turn two of its production facilities into vaccine production centres. Now, the balance sheet at the U.S. vaccine maker Novavax points to a loss in the fourth quarter, but these numbers tell just a fraction of the whole story, and it's a comeback after decades of challenges. A year before the pandemic hit, it faced delisting from the Nasdaq and was yet to provide a single approved vaccine. Fast forward to today, and its COVID-19 shot is heading towards approval, and the stock is up 1,400% in a year. Stanley Eck is a president and CEO of Novavax, and he joins us now. Stanley, I have much to discuss with you on vaccines and approvals and manufacturing, but I just want to take a step back. It has been decades of challenges for the company, and now you're on the cusp of getting approval for a vaccine. How does it feel for you and for the team? Well, as you can imagine, it feels great. We've, we've been working on something that we believed in for a long time. We believe in our platform. It takes it just it's it's a great indication that it's this is a very hard business. It's hard to make new vaccines, and so the team is has held together. We've grown, and uh, we're on the cusp of uh, having an approved vaccine. Yeah, it's about timing. It's also about money. Talk to me about the trials that you've got underway, the UK, in South Africa, and in the United States mm-hmm. too. If we hone in on what you're seeing in the UK first of all, the efficacy rate of this vaccine whether it's tackling the UK variant or the original COVID-19 disease is pretty phenomenal. It is. We're very happy. Actually, we're very happy with all the results. We're, we're, we're uh, in the process of, of uh, finalizing three phase three trials at the same time. And as you mentioned, uh, US, UK and, and South Africa. And in the UK in particular, where we have data, we, we don't have data in the US other than the fact that we announced last week that we had we had uh, uh, enrolled all 30,000 people in the trial over a period of six weeks, which is a record time. But in the UK, we have data. And as you point out, uh, we had very successful data in, in the half of the trial where uh, the the people were exposed to the original Wuhan, as they refer to it, virus. We had 96 percent efficacy, a great number. And uh, even with the variant, uh, the UK variant, we had 86 percent protection. And it shows that there is an effect on on variant forms of the virus, but it also shows that our vaccine is broadly uh, effective. And how quickly and easily can you adapt 
this vaccine and adjust for those variants like the South African one. We were just showing the numbers there. Yeah. It's still efficacious, but obviously it's a lot lower than what we've seen against the UK variant, for example. It is. How quickly can you adjust? Yes, so, so it is what we showed in the UK, uh, sorry, in South Africa, showed a couple of things. One is, is that in, in that variant, it is even more diverse than the rest of the, than mm. the original Wuhan strain. And, and uh, even with that, uh, at least in the population that was HIV negative, which was most of the trial, we showed that it was 60%. So 60%, not as good as 90, uh, but it's certainly better than no effect at all. And so what we can do is we can adjust our vaccine, just like what you do every year with a flu vaccine, where you change the strains every year. We can change the strain, and we've already done that. We've we've uh, we've entered into animal studies to show that the that the strain. Uh, works as well as the original strain. In fact, what we're doing is we're making a bivalent uh, using both strains, both the original strain and the South African strain, uh, and and we'll try that. Uh, and actually, we we plan to do test both in human trials uh, starting by the end of the second quarter. And so my guess is is that that we'll be we'll be distributing a bivalent vaccine by the fall of uh, this coming year of this year. How confident are you that you can? take the UK data, give it to the United States and say, look at our results here. This is good enough for approval. It's something that we spoke with a partner of yours, the Serum Institute of India CEO, and he said, we need to be more able to approve a vaccine or authorize a vaccine based on other nations' data. Are you confident that the US regulators will sign off on that based on what you've done in the UK? So it's, it's part of their mandate. Uh, part of their guidance is, is that they will accept data from, from outside of the United States for licensure. And so what we have to do, it's, the burdens on us, is we have to accumulate all the data for the UK trial. We have to convince the FDA that, that those data that we generated from the vaccine that was used in the UK is comparable to what we would get uh, with, our, with our data in the US. And so that, if, if they agree with us, that could save us a couple months of getting into the U.S. Well, because our U.S. data is going to be a couple months later, and mm. and so it would be helpful. But 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 you know the, the burden's on us to show the to prove to the FDA that, that we have a comparable vaccine. So we think we can. That's what we're going to try. Yes, ball in your court on that one. Talk to me about ball price. <laughs> Talk to me about price, Stanley, if you can. I, I should mention this doesn't require the deep storage, the deep cold storage that the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines require. So there's obviously high hopes that this vaccine could be used in developing nations as well. Can you just give us a sense relative, even just to what AstraZeneca is saying and, and Pfizer and Moderna, could it be less expensive than, than any of those? Well, Early on, and so going back to summer of last year, we had, we had had a relationship with with the people with whom you spoke uh, at Serum Institute, and said, mm. you know, we we cannot, we think it, it's terribly important that the vaccine gets distributed globally, uh, and that you have equitable access. And and how we right. interpret that is to have tiered pricing, so that we have pricing in 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 the lowest income countries at one level and 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 a different price in the US and Europe for instance so we we partnered with Serum Institute Serum Institute is the largest vaccine ma- manufacturer in the world two thirds of the world's children get a vaccine made by Serum Institute at, at prices you know as low as 1 or 2 or 3 dollars and so so we have uh, partnered with them uh, because we don't have the capability as a biotech company to distribute and register products in, in low and middle income countries. They do. And yeah. so they took on that half of the world 
And uh, they have uh, already reached an agreement with Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccines, uh, to, to sell them uh, hundreds of millions of doses at $3 a dose. And we, Novavax can't do that, but they could. So that's, that's how we get our product uh, distributed globally is, is through them. What was the game changer, Stanley? I mentioned at the beginning financials and time and obviously brilliance of science. But would you have been in this position if the U.S. government hadn't said, OK, here's some money, get going, we think you can do this? Well, it's hard. Uh, they helped a lot. And, and, but as did uh, organizations outside the U.S. government, such as the Bill and uh, Melinda Gates Foundation has contributed, CEPI, this organization that's headquartered in London um, or in Europe, and uh, they contributed as well. So could we have done it without? Who knows? But we, we had the U.S. Uh, support, and, uh, and, and it's been very helpful. Stanley, brilliant to have you on. Keep us posted with um, your results as they come through, please. And uh, congratulations to you and the team. A lot of hard work and brilliant science, and we keep our fingers crossed. Stanley Oakbed, the president and CEO of Novavax. Great to have you with us. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Tuesday. Little changed overall, though the major averages are holding on to the lion's share of Monday's bumper gains. Yes, stocks really did come in like a lion on the first day of March, as we predicted. Investors seemingly undeterred by a warning from a top Chinese regulator that Western financial markets are in bubble territory. Positive vaccine news could lend support today to Merck and Johnson & Johnson set to announce what is being called a historic partnership to manufacture J&J COVID vaccines, a welcome sign that vaccine rollouts continue to gain steam. In the meantime, U.S. retailing giant Target higher in early trade, too, after posting a 21 percent rise in Q4 sales. Stimulus checks helping provide the extra oomph here. And even though new $1,400 checks appear on the way in the United States, Target says the economic outlook is too uncertain to give forward guidance. All right, let's turn to Twitter, which plans to double its revenues by 2023. The social media network wants to ramp up its number of monetizable daily active users from 152 million to 315 million. To do this, it's teasing a range of new features, including super follows, subscriptions, tipping for content creators, and more features to boost group engagement. Joining us now is Ned Siegel, Twitter's chief financial officer. Ned, great to have you on the show as always. These are eye-popping targets. Talk to me about boosting daily active users first, because this has been a challenge over a number of quarters. What specifically is going to draw people to Twitter that perhaps haven't been using it or have been using other social media platforms instead up to now? Well, thanks for having me, Julia. I'm thrilled to be here to share a little bit more about that analyst day last week where we shared these new goals looking out to 2023. Remember last year, we added 40 million more monetizable daily active users. We had more contribution from our product improvements than we've ever had before. And so it's with that uh, behind us that we've got this great momentum in front of us with product innovation. You mentioned some of the things that we're working on. It all ladders up to making it easier and easier for people to find what they're looking for, to feel safe being a part of the conversation. So we think we can continue to grow our MDAU at 20% or more a year since uh, from last year up through 2023. 
talk to me specifically about the super users, because this does interest me. This is about users for Twitter accessing the people that they listen to or read tweets of on a daily basis and perhaps doing deep dives and paying the content provider for it. Is this a way for you to monetize the platform or perhaps is the emphasis more on these super users monetizing themselves and the content that they currently provide free? Well, we hope to have something out later this year called Super Follows. This would uh, allow people to show premium content to the people who follow them on Twitter to set their own price for it, to build their audience through their tweets and to charge a price for the premium features, whether they're interviews with CFOs of technology companies or long newsletters that they may want to share or even dropping a song from a new album. The ways that people could use this are endless. The prices can be whatever they want. And this is really more about us putting money in the hands of content creators and connecting people with the content they're looking for, as opposed to uh, trying to make money for Twitter, because we're certain that if we get more people to use the service, if we have great content on Twitter, it'll all work out great for Twitter. (laughs) But you would perhaps take a cut of the money, even if it's just a small percentage. That's typically how it works. Uh, I'll give you an example of a company we bought recently called Review, which is a subscription newsletter service to help people who write newsletters find their customers. The way that the, the economics work there, it's actually 95 cents go to the person who created the content and five cents goes to us as a way to cover costs and facilitate the transaction. That doesn't mean that's exactly how it will work, but it shows you how there's a real bias to put money in the hands of the content creator. Wow, we're going to come back to that because I want to talk to you about paying for news in general. But um, I get this question a lot. And when I told people that I was speaking to you, they all said this. Are they ever going to have to? Are we, as people who use Twitter and obviously journalists use it a lot, I think, um, going to have to pay for access to Twitter just as a subscription in general? Well, that's not in the plans right now. Uh, The way we think about Twitter is we want everybody to have the same great experience when they come to the service. We want it to be easy for you to find what you're looking for. We want to help you find the accounts you should follow through helping you find topics that you want to follow. Today, you can follow one of 6,000 topics. There are over 100 million accounts that now follow a topic, meaning we're doing the hard work for you to find the information you're looking for. We also want everybody to see compelling ads and we may add premium services on top of this that we would charge for, but the plans aren't for that to change the underlying service that everybody experiences today. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. One of the um, the differences, I think, between, and it was quite marked for me, in what Twitter does in terms of advertising versus what we see from perhaps some of the other social media platforms, particularly when there was the backlash over, over content. And one of the things I think that made advertising so sticky for some of the other platforms was a huge majority of their advertising comes from small and medium-sized businesses. Where does it come from in terms of Twitter's advertising business? Is it big business? It's a great question, Julia. So today, 85% of advertising on Twitter comes from large advertisers, only 15% from small and medium businesses. There's a massive opportunity for us to help small businesses who are already using Twitter connect with their customers on the service, show their hours of operation, have their menu, find a new customer, re-engage with existing customers. Today, we just don't make it easy enough for them to find their customers. We don't make it easy enough for them to amplify their message. Lots of opportunity there. We've staffed that work, and we hope that you'll see some improvement from us in that 85-15 ratio over time. 
So you see that as a huge growth opportunity in terms of monetizing the platform? We do, but we also see lots of opportunity to continue to help large advertisers as well. Remember when Sony launched the PlayStation 5, they took over Twitter and the conversation around game consoles and gaming broadly. It's a great way for a brand when they're launching a global product to connect with their customers because they know that opinions get formed on our service and they want to be a part of that conversation. Yeah, I remember all the memes and the uh, the photographs. We had a, a good talk about it on the show. I, I do remember. I want to get back to what you were saying about news. Another thing that struck me just in the last couple of weeks or so was what we saw in Australia with the debate between social media platforms paying for news or at least a fair pay for the news that appeared on their site. And I did notice that Twitter wasn't involved in that. Ned, again, what's different about your business model and the way that you interact with news versus the challenges that we saw in Australia and perhaps could spread around the world? Well, Twitter's all about serving the public conversation and helping people find news, whether it's connecting with somebody who's really knowledgeable about a topic that they care about on the other side of the planet or connecting with a journalist who is a well-known person on a particular topic. And you notice we're often a partner to news organizations where they have their uh, content available on Twitter. Sometimes we share ad dollars with them when they put their content on our service. Other times they are just tweeting just like any other account would in order to connect with their customers and be a part of the conversation around the news on Twitter. It's one thing, as you know, to report the news. It's a whole other one to have a conversation around it. And when it's CNN or another news organization coming to Twitter, they're often there not just to report the news, but to be a part of the conversation around it. Yeah, for that reason and the point that we were discussing earlier about the big advertisers, it makes you perhaps more vulnerable if you allow misinformation to spread. And it sort of ties to the decision to... Uh, suspend and then formally ban President Trump or former President Trump's Twitter handle. It also ties to what just came out in the last 24 hours about direct tackling of vaccine misinformation. Ned, talk to me about Twitter's approach to all of these things and how you see it, not only today, but going forward. Well, we want to be really principled and transparent and consistent in how we lay out and enforce our policies. And that means whether they're around vaccines and making sure that people are getting trusted information around vaccines, whether it's around COVID-19 or something else, or making sure that violence is not incited, whether it's by a public official or by somebody else. We want to enforce these policies in a way that builds trust with the people who use our service so that when they come to Twitter, they can trust the information, whether it's about rugby in Japan or cricket in India or politics in the United States. You know, and uh, you and I discussed this off air, half of the tweets that you now take some form of action on is done via machine learning. So you're utilizing uh, new technologies as well. Ned, I want to ask you about the decision to, to switch the president off, irrespective of the content that he was creating and the concerns surrounding it at the time. Do you think Twitter as a social media platform perhaps displayed too much power there as far as future regulation is concerned? Well, I think we've covered that one well. But in in general, when we think about our responsibility, uh, we take so seriously our role in being principled, consistent, and transparent uh, about how we enforce our policies, how we lay them out for people. Our policies are now all less than 280 characters. That means they fit in a tweet. They should be easy for people to understand so that whether you are 
watching a conversation and want to know what to expect from us or you're creating the conversation you know and understand how we'll enforce our policies and recognize that it's not about politics it's not about which team we're rooting for it's not about uh, any particular side of a conversation it's about being consistent and transparent Ned going for growth keep us in touch please with them um, your progress some big bold ambitions Ned Siegel there the CFO off Twitter great to chat to you today on the show thank you Julia Thank you. Okay, breaking news now. And the U.S. is imposing sanctions on seven Russian officials in response to the poisoning and imprisonment of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. The sanctions block access to financial or other assets in the United States for the individuals. The European Union also unveiled sanctions today targeting four Russian men in connection with the poisoning. We're back after this. Stay with us. In case life gives you lemons... Lemonade is a digital insurance company that hopes to offer competitive rates with the help of big data and AI technology. The firm only went public in July last year, but is in a huge growth phase. As you can see from the stock right now, trading lower in the session, despite the company reporting estimate beating fourth quarter results. Lemonade offers renters, home and pet insurance in the United States, contents and liability insurance in Germany and in the Netherlands. And I'm pleased to say we're joined by Lemonade CEO and co-founder Daniel Schreiber. Daniel, great to have you with us. Big expectations, I think, coming into these numbers. Sometimes it's tough to um, meet them. Talk to me about growth, because this is what you guys seem to be all about. I remember looking at you when you first IPO'd and you were covered 27 states, I believe, in the United States, and now you've got the whole country, plus you've expanded into Europe. You have a lot going on. Absolutely, and it's been a a really exciting year for our business. It's been a pretty dramatic year on a global basis as well, but for us, um, it's been phenomenal. So we've just wrapped 2020, just reported our results today. You're talking about 87% year-on-year growth and doubling of marketing efficiencies, even as we're pretty much doubling our business. So a lot of the fundamentals of the business are really beginning to kick in in incredibly powerful ways. And during that time, we've really changed some of the fundamentals. So as you said, we're now offering not only homeowners insurance, which we did for the first four years of our existence, but we added pet insurance and we've just added life insurance. And in addition to Germany and the Netherlands, we've recently just launched in France and done all of that during lockdown. So we're really beginning to see tremendous symbiosis between different geographies, different products. And that feedback loop is kicking in in powerful ways, which have been driving our business in a way that we're very grateful for. Just go back to basics here, because it is the fundamentals that matter. And this is why you're trying to be such a disruptor to the insurance industry, because you're simply trying to use unique data-driven ways to price risk and estimate how you can provide insurance to people for various different products, do it more competitively, but also in the end, hopefully make profits and make money. Just describe how you are different as a company. I think our differences are twofold. So we established Lemonade five years ago and we created everything from scratch, every line of code, but also all the licenses. So Lemonade is a fully vertically integrated company where we are not dependent on incumbent carriers. And that allowed us to reimagine everything about Lemonade. So it starts off with a business model. Insurance companies are usually distrusted, at times despised by consumers, even though they are basically in the business of helping you out in the hour of need. And that deep distrust is rooted in a business model that is perceived by consumers as being conflicted. If I make a claim and if you pay me, 
well, if you pay me, I'm happy, but you're unhappy and vice versa. So we're fighting over the same coin. Lemonade went back to basics and we said we want to use all the science of behavioral economics and game theory to reimagine the business model and create a structure whereby we never make money by denying claims and we are aligned with consumers. And then having created that aligned business model, which is highly differentiated from how the rest of the industry works, we then digitized everything. Insurance companies tend to be 100 years old, 150 years old, some in the UK are 300 years old. We really built everything from scratch. So you buy insurance with Lemonade on your app. The median time to buy a policy is about 90 seconds. Wow. Um, we pay claims instantaneously on the app. About a third of our claims are paid in three seconds using AI and machine learning. So it is not only in the back end that we're using data sets to price and bring amazing products to market. And indeed, customers can oftentimes save about 50% by switching to Lemonade. But it's also delivering an experience that is fundamentally reimagined and reconstructed using the very best of technology. So you can buy insurance in your pajamas in a few seconds and get paid with the same speed and simplicity, no paperwork, no faxes, instant everything. Yeah. And I think the hope here is if you have that degree of customer satisfaction, then you keep fraud down as well, which is another key aspect of this as well. One of the things that leapt out at me, and you've touched on it in the fourth quarter, the sequential growth rate of customers with multiple policies outpacing the growth of single policies by five times. So you're literally managing to cross-sell to products, um, to people. I think one of the other things that also really annoys customers about insurance is you're not paid for loyalty you tend to have to shop around at the end of the year when your policies run out and you can generally find a better deal somewhere else. How do you treat not only cross-selling, but when people renew their policies? Yeah, so it's true. A lot of insurance companies have a loyalty penalty. Right. They'll actually raise your prices on the assumption that you're a customer for life. We really try never to take our customers for, for granted. So we have none of that. And indeed, we're seeing levels of customer loyalty and customer satisfaction that are not familiar in the insurance space. One of the universal measures of that is something known as NPS, Net Promoter Score. And Lemonade is in the 70s to 80s range, which is where Tesla is and where Apple is. But insurance companies tend to be in the single digit. So you're seeing levels of customer delight and customer satisfaction that are, I think, without parallel in the industry. And indeed, if you go in the US, our largest market, to any of the destinations where consumers rank their insurance companies, Lemonade will routinely, in the eyes of consumers, outrank all of the other insurance companies. We came in number one for renters insurance, number one for homeowners insurance separately, and we've since launched two new products. And that has really led to a level of loyalty and customer adoption that is about an order of magnitude faster than what you see elsewhere. We ended 2020 with a million customers after four years in market. The most loved brand in the United States, other than Lemonade, is USAA, which is a phenomenal company. It took them 47 years to get to that kind of a landmark of one million customers. So you're seeing something like a five to 10x acceleration relative to what the incumbents have been able to do until now. So I do think that reimagining everything, being customer centric, giving an incredible experience, not taking customers for granted and simplifying the entire process with an aligned business model is proving itself. And we're seeing that in the growth numbers that you alluded to earlier as well. And we'll come back soon and we'll talk about profitability as well. Daniel Schreiber, CEO and co-founder of Lemonade. Fantastic to chat to you. As always, there's never enough time. Great to have you on. We're back after this. Thank you. Sir. Thank you.
The European Commission is hoping to boost travel in time for the summer. Later this month, it will propose an EU-wide COVID-19 digital passport. The goal is to provide, one, proof of vaccination, two, test results if you've not yet been vaccinated, three, recovery information if you've had COVID, so all critical issues. And Quest means business, the CEO of Virgin Atlantic, agreed to vaccine passports in principle. Overall, we support it if the government support it and if it indeed opens up travel at scale safely in the summer. Have you seen the surge in bookings that we've seen? I mean, in the United Kingdom, for example, when the prime minister basically said they're hoping a date in May to open up for international travel, data dependent. But did you see a mass increase in bookings? Yes, we did. And of course, our prime minister did something, I think, very uh, thoughtful um, in the sense that on February the 22nd, he announced basically the flight path out of lockdown or the road road path for uh, really for the rest of the economy. And he set a date, which is uh, May the 17th, which should be the resumption of international uh, travel and gave, I mean, greater assurance that travel at scale can resume safely in the summer. And indeed, we have seen a surge in booking since uh, February the 22nd. Uh, we've seen certain locations up over 100% vis-a-vis uh, -vis the same week the fall previously. Uh, destinations such as the Caribbean, New York, um, and other locations have seen a surge in bookings based on the increased confidence that there is a way for travel to resume. All right, and that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. And in the meantime, we will be back tomorrow. For now, stay safe and connect the world with Becky Anderson is up next. Have a great day. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.